Peter chapter number 3. This will be questions and answers part 4. And we will try to tackle a number of different things. 1 Peter 3 verse number 15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. This tells us how we should respond to people. It tells us that as Christians we should know enough about what it is that we believe to provide people with some answers. And it also makes it very plain that we certainly should be ready at all times. There's another verse in the Bible that says we should be instant, in season and out of season, which simply means at all times to be ready. And this is what Paul, or excuse me, Peter was saying to these believers who were scattered abroad and facing persecution and difficult times. If you're going to be brought before some kind of tribunal or some Christians or other people are going to interrogate you, have some answers. So we, we have a a few questions tonight we want to look at that I think are really good. Let's go now over to Second Timothy. And this, I think, is where we can begin. Second Timothy 3, verse number 15. That from a child you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Okay, here's the question. How should I read the Bible? That's, that's a fairly simple question, but every year all around this earth there are people who begin some kind of a read through the Bible program, and there are a lot of them who don't complete it. Normally by the time they get to the 30th of January, they pretty much abandon the process because they, they, they just can't, it's hard for them to get out of Genesis. They just start reading there, and it just seems so monotonous, and people lose their, their joy. So a couple of things we'll, we'll say about this. First of all, if we're going to read the book, then we know, as the scripture says, it's given by God. It's a matter of inspiration. That's what this is. This is an inspired text. This is something that comes from the mind of God, through the hands of men, the hands of God, through human vessels. This is the text that gives us God's mind concerning the past, the present, and the future. I've heard some people say that reading this book will keep you from sin. And I've heard other people say that sin will keep you from reading this book. That's true. See? So this, this book is a, is a lamp. It's a guidepost. But to give you some idea about the way the whole thing is put together, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, are pivotal to everything in the Old Testament. Because those five books are so important that everything afterwards is pretty much a commentary on those five books. Because in the first five, you get the history of the creation of the world, the creation of Israel, then the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. From Joshua, the Judges, Ruth, going into the Samuels and the Kings and the Chronicles, that is primarily about getting the people into the promised land so that they can apply all the things that are written in the first five books. So they can apply the history to themselves, apply the laws to themselves, and when you've read the writings, which are the books I just named, then you notice they continually went from following God to apostasy, following God to apostasy. So this is why the prophets came along. And so the prophets, if we start with Isaiah going all the way to the end of Malachi, you'll find that everything they're saying is calling people back to the first five books of the Bible, applying God's law, remembering Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When you read the wisdom literature, the Psalms, the Proverbs, when you're dealing with uh, Ecclesiastes and everything, it's, it's taking you back to the Torah or the law 
Oh, how I love thy law, thy statutes, thy precepts, all of those kinds of things. When you get to the New Testament then, it's important to know that the first four books are foundational to everything. The Gospels, including the book of Acts being part two of the Gospel of Luke. So everything from Romans forward is providing you information about the content in the four Gospels. Jesus' life and the application of his death. What it means as far as redemption. That's what all of the epistles are about. Everybody's trying to explain who Jesus is explain what Christianity is, explain who Jesus is in light of the Old Testament. And so when you start reading the Bible, rather than starting with Genesis 1-1 and just saying, okay, I'm going to commit to read all the way through, start in a variety of different places. Start in Genesis 1, but also start in Ruth chapter 1. Also start in Psalms, first Psalm. Also, start with Isaiah. And then you can also start with Daniel, because from Daniel to Malachi, in the Hebrew Bible, those 12 books are all one book. So I've given you already five different places to start in the Old Testament. And then also, start with Matthew 1, and then also start with Romans 1. Because from Romans to Revelation, if, if you're looking in your Bible, you're only dealing with about 111 pages. So Romans to Revelation is still less material than you have from Isaiah to the end of Ezekiel. Yeah, because you end up with about 171 chapters with nearly 200 some odd pages in that, in that part. And, and you don't have to just read an entire chapter. You know, when you start with Genesis, read the first five verses. It just gives you the first day. If you're gonna, when you start with the Psalms, read the first Psalm, which only has a handful of verses. And you'll discover... If you start reading that way, sometimes in the morning, then sometimes in the evening, you'll find that, that the average person who's trying to read through the Bible in a year, by the time you get to the end of the year, you will have read through certain parts of the Bible two or three times. And they're just not getting to the book of Acts. You will have read the gospel several times. Because you don't have to just read a handful of verses a day. You can get you a small little Bible. And when you have breaks on the job or breaks throughout the day, you can read from these seven places two or three or four or five times a day. It wouldn't take you any more than 11 minutes to just simply look at three or four verses here and there. And, and, and like I said, you, you'd be surprised at how interesting the Bible is when you're taking in more and more of it at one time rather than just saying, oh, my goodness, I'm in First Chronicles chapter 4, and verse 5, and Jabez was an honorable man, much more honorable than his brethren, and his name means sorrow, and then all of that, and you're just depressed. And like most people, most people, when they start trying to read through the Bible, they get, get to Matthew chapter 1, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, they oh, my goodness, and they're done. But make it interesting for yourself. And, and, and you, you actually enjoy it. So that's a, that's a good way of reading through the Bible. Start with Genesis, start with Ruth, start with Psalms, start with Isaiah and Daniel and Romans and Revelation. That's seven different places. And you will enjoy reading two or three verses here and there and just having something to meditate on. Let's, let's work on another question here. Okay, what, what is heaven going to be like when we get there? Sometimes people wonder... About, about that. Well, I can tell you it's going to be everything that earth is not. John had a very difficult time even composing a vocabulary to explain a place that's beautiful. Let's go to Revelation and let's just say a few things over here in chapter 21 where John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and first earth passed away. Now verse 2 then says, of Revelation 21, verse 2 says, I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Now I want to emphasize something to you. We know that when Christians pass away, people who have a relationship with God, when they pass away, they go to heaven. But I want you to understand, heaven is not the end. Where we're, where we're ultimately going to end up is in New Jerusalem which Revelation 21 says descends out of heaven. In the Old Testament, when the chariot of fire picked up Elijah and took him to heaven, 
It says in Genesis that Enoch was translated that he should not see death. He went to heaven. When David lost his baby and they asked him why he was no longer fasting and praying anymore, he said, I know that I will not, uh, uh, the baby's not coming back, but I know that one day I'll go to where the baby is. He understood in heaven. Jesus told us in the gospel that in the kingdom, people are going to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we know they went to heaven. And over and over again, we see this. Acts chapter 7 says, Stephen looked up into heaven and saw the Lord at the right hand of the Father. So when we come to Revelation 21, then we learn something very interesting, that God's working on a city. Now, it may be finished, but he's working on a city, and the city has streets of gold. And it's in this new Jerusalem, verse 2, that is a bride uh, prepared that, that we ultimately are going to be. And you can read verse 4, and it talks about that there there's not going to be any death or sorrow. So you have to start trying to envision or imagine a world where there are no funerals. Because we deal with those every day. Imagine a world where there's no sorrow. That means there's not going to be any bad news. That, that means that there's not going to be any pain, as it says in verse 4. Now that, that's central to a lot of what goes on in this world because the presence of sin produces pain. And pain comes in a lot of different ways. Pain in your body is an indicator that something's out of order. But we need to understand that Romans says that all of creation groans and travails. Because ever since sin entered into this world, everything is out of order. Trees are not supposed to die. Your hair is not supposed to turn color. The way God created everything, in, in the beginning made man so that man was good, man was made to be eternal. To not die, to not live with sin, which is why they were put out of the garden and not allowed to eat of the tree. So Jesus comes and he restores to us the possibilities of eternal life. And eternal life takes up residence in us as Christians. And this is why we know we have an uncreated life within us. And one day we're going to shed this physical body. They're going to place it in the ground. But our soul and our spirit is going to be with the Lord forever in heaven. And that's a place where we will still have our memory. Memories? Well, how do you know that? Well, let's not forget the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember the one man was in hell, the other man was in Abraham's bosom, which is a, another way of describing or speak, speaking of, of heaven, a place where God was at. The, the problem with hell was that the man was there and knew that the presence of God was real, but it wasn't where he was at. That's, that's got to be one of the most tormenting things about being in hell, to know that God is somewhere where you are not, and you can't get to him. And he remembered that he had brothers in hell. Well, the, the poor man who was carried by the angels into the presence of Abraham, uh, the man said, would you let him dip his, 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 his finger in some water and then let him touch my tongue, and then said, could you send him back to my family to preach to them and Jesus said, Well, what good would it do for him to come back from the dead? They have Moses and the prophets to preach to them every day through the scriptures in the Bible. And if they don't believe the Bible, they won't believe somebody who raised from the dead who came and talked to them. Now that's an amazing statement to think. If 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 someone was raised from the dead and came and spoke to you, you would think you would immediately believe in God. But Jesus says, if a person won't believe the texts of the scriptures that are given by God, a person being raised from the dead is not going to impress them either. That's what Jesus said. So when you get to heaven, you'll have memories, but the kind of memories that you have will not be able to produce sorrow, pain, tears. And see, I can't understand that because the memories we have now, even when we think of the loved ones that we've had good relationships with, we begin to miss them, and it's just a few moments before we're just breaking down and bawling like little kids. But somehow, in the presence of God, we'll be able to think about things from whenever, and it won't have that effect on us. We also know that in heaven, there won't be any marriages. See? Remember the story of the, uh, I think it gives the illustration of someone been married to several siblings. 
And then they said, when, when they get to heaven, who, who is the person going to belong to? And so Jesus said, you, you err because you don't understand the power of God or scriptures. For in heaven, we'll be like the angels. You don't marry, not given in marriage. So when we, when we get up there, it won't be about who, who was my first wife, who, who, who passed away, who was my second, who was my third. The, the only thing up there that's going to matter is that you have a relationship with God. Heaven's going to be a happy place. I think that's one reason Christians are the happiest people on the planet because we know what is up ahead. New Jerusalem. To think of the fellowship that we're going to have with one another. I mean, there, there'll be people who want to live forever. See, forever. That, that's, that's incomprehensible to me because people die every day. But forever. To, to know that, that we'll have a, a glorified body that doesn't decay. To know that you'll be in a world where you'll never pass away and you'll still see a number of saints. Now we know people will recognize one another because in the book of Revelation, John, he, when he was getting his tour up there, you, you'll remember he was going around with the angels and all of that. Then one occasion he came up to somebody and he fell down and tried to worship him. And the guy said, don't do that. I'm one of the fellow servants of God. And, and, and he he didn't know who that was. We do know that when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain and Moses and Elijah appeared to him, he knew exactly who they were and exactly who he was. I don't have a doubt that although we will all look differently when we get into heaven, we will all remember one another and we'll be able to talk about the things that the Lord did for us here. We'll be able to hear the stories and meet the other saints that are part of that great cloud of witnesses who passed on before us. I think everybody wants to sit down and talk to Paul, and Peter, and the twelve. Everybody would be interested in hearing some of the stories that Isaiah told. And, and, and I'd love to just ask Abraham, what in the world was it like just for you to step out and just leave your homeland to go to a place you've never been to? I'd love to ask him that. And we, we will have opportunities for for the fellowship. We do know from the book of Revelation that uh, some aspects of, of things that take place on earth, they have some degree of knowledge of that because it tells us in some locations that when certain things happen down here on planet earth, they start rejoicing up there in heaven and praising God. So there has to be some kind of simultaneous interaction of knowledge that's going to trigger that kind of a thing. Now, we don't know when the Lord's going to come. We know that scripture teaches he'll come soon. But you and I very well may be part of that group of people in heaven that are praising God because of things that are taking place down here in the end time. That's if the Lord tarries. Okay, let's work on another, another uh, question. How, let me make a note here. Okay. How do I lead someone to the Lord? If you're a Christian, someone is wanting to know how to become a Christian. What do you say? You know, where do you take them in the scripture? If you're going to take them in the scripture. Let's go to Romans. We'll start in chapter 3. And I'll just give you some basic principles. If you don't have these verses highlighted, you can highlight them. <clears throat> but, but this is how. If you're talking with a family member or you're riding in a car with someone or sitting on a park bench with someone and they say, you know, I, I realize that you go to church a lot and, and, and you're, a, you're a, a person of faith, but how do I get there? You know, how, do, how, how do I become what you are? How can I become a Christian? Well, here's the first thing. You, you need to be able to tell the story of the gospel. You have to have good information about the fact that Jesus came into this world, was born of a virgin. You, gotta be able to, you, wanna, you wanna explain all of that. You wanna be able to explain he lived without sin, that he died as a lamb on the cross for people's sin. You need to make sure people understand that he literally died, was really resurrected from the dead as God, and then went back to heaven. 
Now, it's the telling of that story, whether you shorten it or lengthen it, it's the telling of that story that brings about conviction. Only the Holy Ghost can produce that. It's the telling of that story. When people hear that story, God the Holy Ghost works on their heart, and they hear that, and they start thinking about that. So the, the ABCs of salvation work like this. A, a person needs to admit they're a sinner. That's A. You need to help a person be able to do that. Help them to admit that they're a sinner. B, they need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Have to believe. Because if they admit that they're a sinner and they're under conviction, quite naturally, they're going to repent. But they've got to project their faith and they've got to believe in the Lord. So B is believe. And then C, confess your faith in Christ. You've really become a believer? Let people know. Let people know. And if, if you can remember those three things, admit that you're a sinner, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, confess the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior and Master. You're, you're going a long way in, in helping people because it, there are these words that people don't understand. If you say to them, admit you're a sinner, and they're non-religious and they don't know anything about church, then, of course, they're going to want to know what is a sinner. Then you have to tell them. You have to explain to them what a sinner is. If, if you're telling them that they should believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then they say to you, okay, well, what does it mean to believe? Then you've got to be able to explain to them what it means to put your trust in and, and to, to, to show confidence and to rely upon what he did upon Calvary for you. And then when you say confess your faith, you're saying to them, if you're sincere and true about this admittance and then this new belief that you have it ought to come out of your mouth because what's in your heart is going to come out of your mouth you should be willing to talk to people about your faith jesus said whoever is ashamed of me in the presence you know whoever's ashamed of me down here before men i will be ashamed of them in the presence of my father so this means that the confession part is important so everywhere that i went as a young man and i met new people and I didn't know anything about them. They didn't know anything about me. I made sure they, they understood quickly by the way that I talked that I was a Christian. I wanted them to know immediately I was a Christian. And by doing that, you're sending out signals. Sending out signals. Okay, so that's the ABCs of salvation. But to, to, to complement that, you need to know the Roman road to salvation. And in the book of Romans, I'm going to give you... Three scriptures that if you don't have highlighted, you can highlight. You certainly should memorize. But Romans 3, verse 23. Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's a verse that encompasses all seven million or so people on this planet. There's no such person who can say they have not sinned or they were not sinners. So Romans 3.23. Second verse you need to know. Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So now that we know that all have sinned, we learn from verse 23 that the paycheck of sin is death. But the, the remedy is the eternal gift that God gives in salvation. And then one other verse that you should know, Romans 10, verse number 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So there's your ABCs again. Admit you're a sinner. Believe on the Lord. Confess Jesus Christ. And those verses there, if you somehow can memorize those, or at least memorize where they are, no matter where you are on this planet and you're talking to somebody, 
Even if you don't feel confident in the way that you speak, you can take them down the Roman road to salvation just by showing them the scriptures. Romans 3.23, And then they can see it for themselves, and God the Holy Ghost it can uh, work on them. And it may not be too bad if you just say a prayer with them. They can. They, you may or may not have them pray with you, but the key is not the sinner's prayer. We put a lot of emphasis on that. Even when, in meetings where I preach, we'll, I'll say to people, I'll say, okay, there's a large number of you folks out here, but I'm going to count to three. When I get to three, if you, if you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want you to shoot your hands straight up in the air. Then I'm saying one, then two, then three, then hands just start going up all over the place. Then I say, all of you folks, come on down here, and we're going to pray a prayer. Don't be ashamed. Come on down. So they, they come down. And then I pray a prayer with them. But folks, I already know that during the message I was preaching, they started believing. See? So by the time they come forward, this is just merely a public announcement that says to other people, I've accepted Christ. Men, I pray a prayer with them. And then there, there is no specific sinner's prayer. I just simply pray with them the way you would pray with a six-year-old. Father, forgive me of my sins. I'm sorry for how I've lived. But I now believe Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived in this world without sin. He died on the cross, received the penalty and judgment upon himself that should have come to me. I believe he was raised from the dead. Father, I believe you're coming into my heart right now, and Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Amen. That's how I pray with him. You can pray like that with a six-year-old. You can pray like that with a 60-year-old. Not difficult at all. But, but that is how you lead somebody to the Lord. And, and people will be so grateful afterwards that you've done that. Let me uh, give another one, Dan, uh, another question. So if, <clears throat> if we lead someone to the Lord, then, then uh, eventually here comes this question. Can a believer lose his or her salvation. That comes up uh, quite often. I think the, the question, because that's, that's, that's typically how it, how it comes, but the, the question needs to be a little bit more precise. We could ask, has anyone who was saved from their sin ever missed heaven? See, that's a, that's a good question. That's another way of asking that. And, and I, I'll take, let's go to Luke chapter 6. I'm going to take a very long and drawn out pathway with you and, and lead you through this. Because here's ultimately what this is going to come down to. I'm going to put all this evidence in front of you through the scripture. And this is what's going to come down to you. What do you believe happened to Judas Iscariot when he died? See, that, that's the answer to your question. Do you believe a person can lose their salvation? Is it always once saved, always saved? Once in grace, always in grace? The answer to the question is, what do you believe happened to Judas Iscariot? And, and I'll show you, show you why. Luke chapter 6, look at verse, verse number 12. It came to pass in those days that Jesus went out into a mountain to pray, and he continued all night in prayer to God. When it was day, he called unto him his disciples. And of them, that's of the disciples, he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles. Now, notice the names there. In Luke 6, verse 14, it starts with Simon. And then the last one there, verse 16, Judas Iscariot. Now, now let's remember, anytime we see Judas Iscariot, and then it says the traitor or the one that betrayed him, remember, they're writing after the fact. I'm going to show you in a little while here. They had no idea Judas was a traitor or Judas was a, a, betray, a betrayer. So that's Luke 6, verse 13. Let's go to Matthew 10. We're going to look at a, a number of scriptures, so be ready to turn. I'm only going to stay at each of these for about 30 or 40 seconds. Matthew 10, look at verse number 1. We're working on the question, can a, belie a believer lose their salvation? So I said let's... Let's put it this way. Has anyone who was saved ever missed heaven? Matthew 10, verse 1. 
When he called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out to heal all men of sickness and all men of disease. Now the names of the twelve were, and then he gives them again, going down to verse 4. Here's the thing. He gave them power. There are twelve that he chose. He gave all twelve of them power to cast out devils. Now if you recall, the question we had last week or week prior to that was what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or what is the sin that God cannot forgive? And we looked at the part where they said Jesus was full of Beelzebub, the prince of devils. When Jesus said Satan can't cast out Satan. And he said, if Satan does, then his kingdom is divided. Now, my point in all of this is, is two things. Number one, Jesus prayed about who to make apostles. After he prayed and got the mind of God, he chose 12. To those 12, he gave a deposit of supernatural divine energy, the kind that could heal the sick and to cast out the devil. Jesus could not have given power over the devil to Judas if he was the devil, because you, the devil can't cast out the devil. But we know from Matthew 10 that they did go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel two by two into the different villages, and Jesus told them to heal the sick, and that is exactly what they did, all 12 of them. It doesn't say he gave power to 11. It doesn't say he gave power to eight of them. He gave it to all 12. Now let's go to John chapter 7. Gospel of John chapter 7. The Gospel of John chapter 7. And listen to what Jesus now says as disciples are trying to run away from him. Excuse me, John 6. John 6. Notice verse 67. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, will you also go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered them, have I not chosen you twelve and one of you is a devil? Okay, so notice, this is a matter of grammar now. Notice the verb tenses. Have I not chosen, that's past tense, and one of you is that's present tense, a devil. Now, what I'm, what I'm showing you here is, is as of right now, there's, there's something going on here, but as of right now, Judas is on the wrong path. He's on the wrong path right now. Because Jesus just said, have I not chosen 12 of you, but one of you is a devil. But he wasn't like that when he called him. He wasn't like that when he prayed all night and he appointed him to be an apostle. As I told you before, Jesus cannot take an apostle, choose him, appoint him, select him, elect him, give him authority over the devil, and say go village by village and just destroy the devil's kingdom if he is the devil. See, there's something that has happened, and we'll be able to see how some of these things occurred. Go to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Now, if you have other questions that come up, we'll try to work on them towards the end, but... Is that my that my one? Did I write that right? John thirteen. How did I keep missing these? Huh? John thirteen. Jesus is at the supper with these disciples of his. In verse um, uh, verse eighteen, he says, I, "I'm not speaking of all of you, but I know whom I've chosen." but that the scripture might be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. So, of course, the disciples, you can see in verse 22, 23, and 24, they're trying to figure out who is against Jesus or opposed to him. And verse 26, Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped. And when he dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, what does it say happened to Judas? Satan entered into him. See? There's a transformation that is occurring. The devil has entered into him, which means prior to this moment, the devil wasn't in him. See? Wasn't in him. Now, we, we, we know from the story in one of the Gospels where 
Judas got mad about the money. You remember that? They came and they broke the alabaster box and they had the fragrance. And, and Judas said, I, I can't believe this woman came in here and did that. We could have took this money and spent it on the poor. So he, he's more interested in what he considers to be waste than ministering to the Lord. And, and what I think happened with Judas. This is what I think happened with Judas. I think Judas started out like everybody else. He had a love for God. He was walking with Jesus. He met a man that was unlike anybody he'd ever seen in his life. He was sincere. He received power from God. He was going about preaching the kingdom, seeing supernatural things take place. But eventually, some offenses started building up in his heart. You know, if you have good meetings over and over again, you see God doing things. If you're not careful, that can become old hat. You become too familiar with it. You just pretty soon, you just know how to work it, and it works out. And, and, and he probably saw the way people were giving to Jesus and blessing Jesus. He prayed, Maybe he didn't like the way that was happening. But there was some kind of transformation taking place, and a root of bitterness was springing up in his heart. And the fruit of it is now manifested by the fact that here it is, Jesus is getting ready to go to Calvary. And the devil found a place in him and didn't find it in anybody else. Now, the Old Testament does say somebody was going to have to betray the Messiah, but it does not say it had to be Judas. It does not say it had to be Judas. Judas allowed himself to get in that position. That's why the scripture says, guard your heart. Turn to John 17. John 17. This is that beautiful prayer that Jesus prayed to his father about unity. John 17, 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept. None of them is lost but the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. Okay, so now we run into something different here. None of them is lost but one. Now Jesus gave power in Luke 10 to 70 disciples. 70 other disciples who went about casting out devils and healing the sick. And they came back slapping each other on the back, said, man, you should have been in that crusade over there in that village. Cripples were walking, all kinds of things were happening. We were casting the devil out. It was amazing. And the Lord said, hold on, hold on. I've seen that pride before. He said, I saw the devil fall like lightning from heaven. He said, don't be happy and rejoice because demons are subject to you. But rejoice because your names are written in the book of life. Now there's no way you can believe that the 70 had their names in the book of life. But the 12 didn't. When in that new city, New Jerusalem, it's the 12 disciples, minus Judas now, the 12 disciples who were the foundation stone of that city. We'll, We'll say something about the taking out of that name here in a little bit. Let's go to Luke chapter 22. I'm going to pick up the pace now. Luke. <laughs> Luke, chapter, Luke chapter 22. Notice verse number 47. While he yet spake, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, betrayest thou? the son of man, with a kiss. So he came close to the Lord, kissed Jesus on the cheek, because some of the soldiers would not have been able to identify Jesus had not Judas gave the sign. Here is the rabble rouser. Here is the one threatening the Roman kingdom. Here is the one that's the guilty party. Go back to Matthew 27 now. Matthew 27. So we know that Judas covenanted with the priests and the different people for some silver. Then he went and kissed Jesus on the cheek. Matthew 27, look at verse 1. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him, led him away, delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself, and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. 
saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? See thou too. Now, now notice his wording. I betrayed innocent blood. He, he knew that Jesus was an innocent man. He had been with Jesus all this time. Verse 5, he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. So Judas went and committed suicide because he was so overcome with the condemnation and the grief of what he did. When it says he repented himself, he was sorry. He was sorry that he gave the silver. He was sorry that he received the money for betraying the Lord. He was sorry for the fact that he had turned his back on somebody that had never done any wrong to anybody. That he had took an innocent man, turned him over to wicked men, and that this innocent man was about to die. And so here he is in his situation. He's feeling bad about all of that. He goes out and hangs himself. Go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. As far as Peter and the rest of the disciples are concerned, the show must go on. Yeah. Acts chapter 1, look at verse 18. It's talking about Judas. Well, let me start with verse 15. Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. There were about 120. He said, men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spoke concerning Judas which was a guide to those who took Jesus. He was numbered with us and had obtained part of this ministry. Peter doesn't sound like he, he believed that Judas was a fake person who was a part of it. Peter honestly believed Judas was one of them. And he said, verse 18, this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. Falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst and all his bowels gushed out. Now, according to ancient history, wherever Judas went and hanged himself, his body was over a cliff, and his, and, and his body fell. I don't know if it was decapitation or what, but his body fell down a hill, and his innards just, just cut out by the, the rocky portions of the sides of the hill. And so that's the story of Judah. They took 30 pieces of silver and went out and bought a field, and they called it the field of blood. When you get to Israel, they still have it to this day. They know the area. Akuldama, that is the name of it in Aramaic, and it's similar in Arabic. Dama meaning blood, and akul being a field. So this is why I said when it comes to the, the answer to the question, can a believer lose his or her salvation, it depends on how you handle the story of Judas. If you believe Judas could do everything that he did in making to heaven, then in your theological belief, anybody's going to be able to make it. See? But Jesus said in John 17, I haven't lost any of them but one, the son of perdition. Now the scripture does tell us about a gentleman by the name of Demas, who Paul says has forsaken him and gone after the world. The New Testament does not give us a lot of illustrations of people who start off walking with the Lord and then leave him. It does not. People start off walking with the Lord and they stay with him. And I say that because I'm not like some people who get you saved on Sunday and lost on Monday. I believe a man or woman that genuinely comes to the Lord with a pure heart and they're sincere and their desire to grow close to God in their relationship, I believe they're fine. But you still have to walk a fine line and keep your heart right because I've seen people who genuinely love the Lord but something happened in their life and a root of bitterness sprung up and pretty soon. The God they love for 20 years. Now they don't want to have anything to do with the Lord. And they end up going into some other faith. And for somebody to come along and just look at them and say, well, if they left it, then they never had it in the first place. Who are you to tell them what they had? See? How can you say they weren't sincere, they weren't genuine? You say, well, there's the verse in, in John that says, had they been with us, they would have continued with us and not gone out from amongst us. But that's not talking about people like Judas, who was casting out devils. Talking about people just try to slide into a church and act like they love the Lord. This man had a relationship with the Lord. Let's give you one more scripture. Go to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. This is a very interesting verse here. 
70, we're told by the Lord, rejoice because your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation chapter 3. Notice what he says to the church at Sardis. Verse 2. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you've received and heard. Hold fast and repent. If therefore you shall not watch, I will come on you as a thief, and you shall not know what hour I will come. You do have a few names in Sardis that have not defiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not do what? Blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. So here's the question I've asked my friends over and over again who teach once saved always or eternal perseverance and stuff like that. I asked the question concerning verse 5. Why would Jesus tell John to write this verse unless it was possible? Again, he says, He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. So the opposite is also true. The one that does not overcome, he will not be clothed in white raiment, and I will blot out his name out of the book of life. Remember what Moses said to the Lord concerning the children of Israel? The Lord wanted to wipe out all of the nation of Israel and start all over with Moses. And Moses said, no, no, Lord, don't do that. Blot my name out. So even as far back as Moses, there was the idea God had a book. And there was a possibility a name could be etched out. So as a Christian, the only thing I've ever said to people, the, the man or woman who gets in so much trouble with God that their salvation is in jeopardy, I would probably never know it. Judas was in trouble with God and all the disciples were sitting there at the table eating with him. And they were saying, which one do you think it is? Because nobody even thought it was Judas. Judas was carrying on just like the rest of them. They had no they had no ability to discern it. And, and I say that to say that uh, uh, typically when, when people lose out with God like that, you're not going to always know it. It's just, it's, that's something between God and the individual. What I can say to you is if you love the Lord out of a pure heart and you're doing everything you know to do, walking in the light that God has provided for you, you have assurance in your heart that God is taking care of you and you're going to heaven. That does not mean you have to be perfect. None of us are perfect. It's impossible to be perfect. But our imperfections would push us down and make the gap between us and God so much greater. That's where his grace comes in. And we trust in his grace. And we say, Father, thank you that with all my, my defects and flaws, you still have made up the gap through the death of your son and his blood. But the man or woman that says, I denounce the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't believe that Jesus really died for my sins. The whole Christian faith is a fiction. The scripture says in Hebrews, that person who tramples the blood of Jesus is in trouble. Yeah, in trouble. So that, that doesn't include any of us in here. Let's try to work on one more. Okay, one more. Here's a question. <clears throat> Did miracles cease? With the death of the last apostle. Yeah. Miracles cease with the death of the last apostle. Well, if they did, then the early apostolic church didn't know it. Because when you read the books or the writings of the people who were the disciples of the 12 apostles, one of the things you notice is they still give you stories of supernatural things. So like John... Apostle John, some of his disciples, Ignatius, Polycarp. When you read the stories that they've written in their epistles, it goes right on telling about supernatural things that were taking place. And this goes right on up into the second and third century. It's not until the church tries to organize itself in the fourth century that they start coming up with these strange ideas that the most important thing about Christianity is the liturgy. We shouldn't expect God to do supernatural things anymore. I do need to give you some, some, Bible, uh, some Bible knowledge on this. Here's the thing. God started with Abraham. 
He said, leave your land, leave your country. In Abraham's life and ministry, God did supernatural things. It's with Abraham that the first recorded healing occurs in the Bible. There were people who, in a particular land, the women had gone barren. Abraham prayed. God opened the wounds of the people. The miracle took place. Abraham believed and understood that the God that appeared to him in Ur, the God that appeared to him in dreams and visions, was also a God that healed. He didn't have a Bible. He didn't have any books that I know of that he could read. But what he believed about God and hearing God speak to him saying, look up at the stars in the heavens and look at the sand on the seashore. He said, all the sand, you can't count it. All the stars, they're innumerable. That's how your seed is going to be. And you don't even have a child right now. He believed. His wife miraculously had a child. This man believed in the miraculous because of God. Abraham transmitted that same knowledge to Isaac. Isaac never one time believed. God only did that in Abraham's day. Isaac believed he'd do it for him. It went down to Jacob. Jacob had dreams. God made him a, he made a promise to God. I'll give you a tithe if you, if you oversee my life and you bring me back safely into the promised land. God did. Jacob had children. He had a boy named Joseph. You know the story of his life, the favor of God upon him, the miracles that took place in his life in preserving him and keeping him and bringing to pass all the things that he saw in dreams and in visions. So Joseph believed what Jacob believed, who believed what Isaac believed, who believed what Abraham believed. Well, the children of Israel went down into Egypt. They were there for 400 years. They obviously believed that God was real and God would supernaturally intervene. Otherwise, they would not have been praying to God asking for deliverance from Egypt and help. So what did God do? He shook heaven and earth, and he, he rescued a baby by the name of Moses in answer to their prayer. Now, always remember this. Anytime you have to ask God to do anything for you, that you are incapable of doing for yourself, you are asking for supernatural help. So long as you ask for supernatural help and he gets involved, I don't care what language you use, it's called a miracle. I don't care if you're just trying to get from, from one side of the bank of the river to the other side. If he gets you there supernaturally without any difficulty or trouble, it's a miracle. Yeah. So the children of Israel prayed, God raised up Moses. God told Moses, go back, redeem the people. He said, how am I going to do it? I'm not a good speaker. God said, Aaron, your brother, he'll be your speaker. Moses went back. He had a rod, and all kinds of miracles were taking place. He'd throw the rod on the ground. It'd become a serpent. It'd swallow up the serpents of the, uh, the magicians. Moses believed at the age of 80 that the, God appeared to him, that the God who appeared to him in the bush of fire was a miraculous God, just like he was a miraculous God for Abraham. Moses delivers the people. He gets old. He passes away. Joshua takes over. God says to Joshua, as I was with Moses, I'll be with you. Joshua believes the same thing Moses believed. It goes all the way into Judges. The Spirit of the Lord come upon Jephthah, upon Gideon, upon Deborah, upon Samson, and so on and so on. And they would supernaturally deliver the people and fight off the enemies, even when it was only a handful of them they did it. They believed that God answered they got into the promised land. God gave them kings. The kings didn't always do right. But when the kings went out to battle, they very often said, I believe we need to talk to a prophet first or bring the priest so we can get the mind of God. Why try to get the mind of God if we don't believe in God? And why ask for the mind of God if we don't believe God communicates? They did it over and over again. When you read the stories of the prophets, the prophecies are about God communicating concerning different nations. Ethiopia, Libya, Egypt, Syria, all these different countries. By the time we get to the New Testament, Jesus comes along. He's God in the flesh. You know he believes in supernatural things. His parents believed in supernatural things. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have been born. Jesus takes the knowledge that he has of Genesis through Malachi, transmits that knowledge into the head of the 12 and the 70 and other disciples. They become disciplined learners to the point that they can go village to village and preach the kingdom of God and see the exact same things because they believe the God that helped Abraham is the God that helped David, is the God that's in Jesus, and now he's helping us. 
By the time Jesus died and was resurrected, went to heaven, he said, go into all the world, preach the gospel. But he said, know this, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. The book of Acts, in every chapter, you have a Jewish person either preaching or a Jewish person getting saved. In every chapter, you've got something supernatural happening. And the only place where it's not happening is when the preacher got too long-winded. Otherwise, something supernatural is taking place. By the time you get to Acts chapter 28, Paul is sitting in a house, a hired house, talking to different people in Rome, explaining to them that the great God of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph is the God that, is, that I'm preaching. He's the God that gave his son, and there's nothing that has changed. Because in chapter 27, they had miracles. They were on the island. Chapter 28, they had miracles. Chapter 27 was a shipwreck. Chapter 28, they had miracles. So over and over again from Acts chapter 1, straight out the back of Acts chapter 28, there were supernatural things taking place, and there's nothing anywhere in any verse, in any scripture that says, when the apostles died, God ceased to do what he used to do. Here's what you need to understand. As long as you are a person that needs to pray, as long as you're a person that needs to ask for divine help, you need to believe in miracles. If you don't, then what's the point of praying? If, if we're just going to start a service or say grace as just a religious thing to do, what's the point of it? There's no point of it. But believe when you pray that God answers prayer. And then I can answer this other one here inside of two minutes. Uh, how, how does God... Punish people in the scripture. Well, Sodom and Gomorrah got in trouble because of the sins in that particular area. And uh, uh, the Lord brought fire and brimstone in the Old Testament. God punished people according to their sins. Individuals and nations ended up in trouble. When you get to the New Testament, one thing you need to know is that God has a covenant with us that is different and distinct from the covenant he had with them in the Old Testament. In fact, ours is better. That's the first thing. So in the Old Testament, the Israelites were constantly getting in trouble with God. You read stories about God opening up the ground and swallowing the people who were in covenant with him. You'll see stories of people. Uh, God brought plagues on them. People became ill because of the judgment of God. But when you get into the New Testament and God's dealing with his New Testament people, there's no verse or story in the Bible, in the New Testament, I should say, where God brings sickness on his children. You're a child of God, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The devil is the one bringing sickness and disease. That's why the Gospels tell you over and over again, shall I not uh, heal this woman whom Satan hath bound all these years? So God deals with us as his children uh, through the Holy Ghost, through conviction. If, if we get out of line, God's big enough to handle you. He's big enough to handle me. We decide... We want to just move away from God entirely and, and, and just become big-time troublemakers. Then, then you're going to start running into that kind of stuff where uh, Ananias and Sapphire start getting in trouble. But see, no, no obedient child of God in the New Testament ever had any problems at all with God. But, but people who, who don't do good, uh, that's when you start reading in the book of Revelation where God, where the Lord wrote to that one church and he said, because you folks haven't done this, he said, I'm going to cast you in a bed of affliction. You know, and that, that kind of a thing. So there, there's no need for a Christian ever to be afraid that the God's trying to uh, put some kind of illness or sickness on them. You, you just walk with God, live holy, keep your faith in God, know that God loves you, and know that no matter how much faith you muster in God, your faith in God will never be as great as his love for you. But you're still required to believe. And then you can, you can rest assured that when you're fighting off different things that attack the body, you can believe that God is there to help you. Now, the book of Revelation gives a lot of other things. Plagues that's coming upon the world. Uh, unbelieving generation is going to be punished severely. People are going to stand before the Lord whose name is not, whoever's name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. Scripture says they're going to be cast into hell. Hell is not the end. The lake of fire is the end. The same way heaven is not the end for us, New Jerusalem is the end. Hell is not the end for the unbeliever. It says 
that they will go into a lake of fire that burneth forever and ever and ever and ever with brimstone. It's a, it's a very difficult task for people that don't know God, but the people who do not know God should know this, that God has made it very difficult to go to hell. Very difficult. Yes, with all that he's done with witnesses and with the Bible, he's put a lot of fences out there. You've you got to pass by a lot of people You've got to step through a lot of grace. You've got to move through a lot of supernatural things to miss heaven. Yeah. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. We're grateful that we can look into the scripture. There's so much to look at, Lord. But I pray that something we said tonight would really stick in our hearts. Help us to be good witnesses for you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.